The following audio message is from Neighborhood Church in Overland Park, Kansas. At Neighborhood Church, we seek to be a community that loves God and our neighbors together. If you would like to learn more about Neighborhood Church, please go to www.neighborhoodchurchop.com. Good morning, everyone. Um, this is the time in our service where we uh, spend about 30 minutes or so studying God's Word. We normally have a sermon and... Um, let me pray before we get started for this part. Jesus, as we come to your word, our, our prayer is that um, your spirit moves us to action, that your spirit teaches our mind, and our minds connected to our heart, and our hearts connected to our feet, and we go and um, we do the things that you're calling us to do. And my prayer this morning is that all of us in this room uh, better know who you are because of your word. And um, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So uh, we're starting a new series today. Uh, we're going to be in the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. Right. And we're going to be studying it this whole semester. We're going to study this all the way to Christmas, this, this short letter. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a new church plant in Thessalonica. Uh, we're going to be looking inside uh, this ancient church plant. What is Paul wanting to say to this early church that has just been planted? We're going to be kind of going verse by verse through this this semester. I'm super excited to go through it personally to study it, but also to learn from it and to live it out. And just as we do uh, most books, as we study, study books here as a church uh, in chunks, is we want to look a little bit of the, the context, like, what is this? What are these words? Where are they from? Who wrote them? Who are they to? A little bit of the context. And the author, as I just shared, is, it's, it's, it's by Paul. Uh, Paul is a missionary who's uh, sharing the gospel with uh, Jews, and mostly Gentiles. Um, th- this idea that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for. Um, and uh, Paul is traveling a bunch of cities all around the Mediterranean Sea. He's setting up churches, and early churches were just gathering, um, uh, new, just the, the gathering of new converts. You, you may think of all the church planting strategies that maybe we talk about today. Um, theirs was a missionary came to, down, to town. A few people, right, um, believed and then that was the church. That was the, that was the church planting strategy um, in, in in the early days of the church. So these were folks who had repented and believed in the saving work of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. And Paul, this missionary, uh, he's an apostle called by Jesus. Uh, Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books. In the New Testament, so almost half of the New Testament was written by Paul. He went on multiple missionary journeys as recorded in Acts, setting up new churches, preaching the gospel wherever he went. Uh, he spent a tenth of his life actually in prison and wrote, you know, even letters in the Bible when he was under captivity. Uh, he was beaten multiple times, and actually he died a martyr's death by the Romans. So that's the author 
here. Uh, Paul was on his second missionary journey when he went to Thessalonica, um, his journey around the Mediterranean Sea. And I have a map here. I didn't make this map, but somebody did, and they did a fantastic job. Um, this is, you know, Israel over here on the right side. Uh, you maybe recognize the boot of Italy if you're kind of thinking where are we at in the world right now. But this is the Mediterranean Sea, and you can see his second journey kind of went up from Jerusalem, went north, went west, <laughs> right? That's west, and then south and back around to Jerusalem. And, and uh, in, the, in the book of Acts, Luke's record of Paul's journey, uh, we actually have that in the scriptures, you kind of can, can track this around. And even part of this, um, you see Lystra there. Uh, that's where Paul met a guy named Timothy, who's a very prominent person in Paul's writings. He even has some books that we have in the Bible, letters that he wrote to this young missionary um, and also on this journey, uh, he's, he's thinking he has a plan of where he's going to go in Asia Minor, uh, but actually he gets a vision from a man from Macedonia. He says, hey, come on over to Macedonia, Paul. So a little bit of Paul's plans changed a little bit, and that's why we have this book, because Paul kept going west. He, he, he went through Philippi, and we'll share about that in a second, but went to Thessalonica, and uh, actually... Currently, this is in Greece. I don't know if you know this area. Some of you may have been to this wonderful, beautiful part of the world. It's a beautiful part of the world. Um, but you're maybe familiar with Athens, you know, in South Greece. But the second largest city, about half the size of Athens, is Thessaloniki. Like, that's what Thessalonica is called now, at least in English. That's how we call this town. So it's a place, right? Sometimes we think, we read these ancient texts, and we're like, oh, that's some buried city somewhere in some desert. It's like, no, this is, you can go there. You can go check it out if you want to. Like, it's a place, um, you know, it's kind of um, up there just north of Athens and uh, next to Rome, that part of the world, okay? So I want to read from Acts 17 to give us a little bit of a picture because sometimes we have this gift. Like, what's the context of this letter? Well, it's actually in the Bible. Like, it's like Luke wrote about this, this trip that Paul and Silas and Timothy took into this town in this church plant. So we're going to start reading today in Acts 17. I'll put it up on the screen just to give us some context about this city and this new church plant that Paul was a part of. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. I think that means a lot of leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. The word rabble is just like from the gangs. They formed a mob. Set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they all, they all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away. 
by night to Berea. That's the context, right? That's how their church plant started. A little different than neighborhood church, right? But that's their first month, right? A new group of believers. And Paul is writing to these folks. These folks who started a church alongside a mob and losing some of their income. And part of this letter we're going to look at, right, is Paul encouraging them to endure. Over and over again, there's going to be this encouraging to endure. And that helps us as we read the Bible and as we study this book this semester, that's where they're at. They're in a pretty hard place. There's some oppression going on. And I think the key verse, I'm going to put it up on the screen for you, is 1 Thessalonians 5.23. As I've gone over this, this, uh, this book numerous times in the last couple months, I think this is the best summary that I could find. 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And hopefully that gets you excited. Like, this is that kind of book. Live holy. Live blameless. You know what? God's going to be there. We need that, right? We need that. So let's go ahead and jump into 1 Thessalonians 1, and we're going to read 1 through 10. We'll study that passage today. Paul, Savannah, or Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So today we're going to look at three virtues of the Christian faith right here from verse 3. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. And Paul's going to continue with this theme throughout the book, but we're going to focus in on these, next verse, these verses that we just read. So number one, the first virtue, work of faith. And let's read verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul wants to begin in this letter saying, hey, you know what? The faith that you have, it starts with God. It starts with a generous God 
who gave them the faith. God had these believers in mind. How do we know that? Well, we know the story from Luke writing in Acts about Paul. There was a vision that came to Paul, this missionary. People in Macedonia going, hey, Paul, come over here. We want to hear about Jesus. So what does Paul and his team do? They make their plans, they change them, and they go to Greece. They go that way. Who's the acting main character in the story? It's God. He's writing a story. He sees a missionary. He sees people that are his sheep. And he's like, okay, I'm going to send you to them. And Paul wants to remind this church that it is God who acted first. Our God works for the salvation of his people. God loves these people. He wants them to have a relationship with him. But you know what it takes on man's part? Well, this idea of faith, this idea of believing, believing with action, that's a real faith. That it's, it's a trusting faith. It's a faith you can stand on. It's the kind of faith where if you hear about a flood coming, you start building a boat versus the kind of faith where you hear about the flood coming and you do nothing different. The kind of faith that Paul is talking about is an active faith. And even last week, right, we looked at Hebrews 11 and 12 in review of Genesis. This hall of faith, this idea that in Hebrews 11 there's men and women that we studied all summer in Genesis that had witnessed God acting for them. And many times, not all the time, they believed and they made decisions to follow God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You hear a flood is coming from God. What's, what's the evidence? Here's a boat. I built a boat, God. I believe you. That is the kind of faith that Paul is seeing in this church, a working faith. So my question for us today is, do you feel like you have a faith that works? Where you hear God say things to you, and then you build a boat, right? Where there's things that are changing. You make decisions in life because you read, or you hear, or in your relationship with God, you, you get a feeling of this is what you should be doing, and then is there evidence of that? Are you sure of that so much that you have a, a working faith? So I just have four quick things here for this section. These, this isn't exhaustive by any means, but how do you grow a kind of faith that when you hear God talking, you want to go over and you want to build a boat? I'm telling the Noah story. That's the example I'm kind of throwing out there, right? Like, you hear faith... And you go do something. Well, the first thing, I think, is you say, God, will you give me more faith? The scriptures are very clear. The faith that you have, it's a gift. God can give you more faith, more reliance, more dependence, more awareness of who he is. Are you asking for that? So number one, ask God for more faith. Number two, pray for God to do things. And then see if he does them. Because you know what? The scripture says he will. 
Now, it may not be exactly what you thought, but we have a God who loves us so much, he wants to hear our words, and he wants to actively work for us. And you know what happens when you pray for something, and then it comes to pass? Your faith increases. You're like, oh, look, God is real. Prayer is powerful. But if you never pray for things, you can never celebrate the work that God's doing that he wants you to be involved in, right? So number one, ask for more faith. Number two, pray for things and see where God shows up. Thirdly, just from the study of Hebrews, right, just that one example, look in the scriptures of where God keeps showing up in humans' lives. Just the story I told about a vision given to this missionary Paul where Paul went to a city that he wasn't going to go to and people there came to faith in Christ. That should increase your faith. Oh, God does really cool things like that. But not only in the scriptures. There's great documentaries and writings of godly people throughout the years. Do you think about Christian biographies at all, ever? People have done some amazing things just because they believed God and they started moving their feet and their lives helped form the world we live in. And maybe lastly, there's modern day folks. People that you trust, people that you look to. Are you spending time with those people that are living a life of faith? Their faith can encourage your faith. So other people in the Bible and church history. And lastly, number four, moves us to our next point. Act on the instructions you find in the Bible. That will increase your faith. So the second verse you we're going to look at is labor of love, and we're going to go right to the second half of verse 5 for this section. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So what does Paul use labor of love here for? This idea of labor? Because love, right? You just look at the word love. That's a pretty powerful word. Just the word by itself. But he talks about this, this idea of the labor of love. This laborious love that Paul is talking about, I think, has to do with the imitation of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and even mentions the Lord or Jesus. They're imitating these missionaries, they're imitating Jesus. And how are they imitating? Well, they're receiving the word. They're receiving the gospel in a certain way. And what does the passage say? In much affliction, they received the word. I had mentioned Paul, right? In Philippi, that town right next door, at least on the map, right? He got arrested there, thrown in prison. Not one of the nice prisons, right? One of those old prisons. And what does God do? He causes an earthquake. And what does Paul do? He shares Jesus with the jail. You know, it's like, these are the stories of the Bible. There's much affliction, but the gospel is at work in suffering. And the next thing he says, not only imitators of us, but imitators of the Lord. Jesus? Was Jesus' ministry wrapped up in affliction? We're not even questioning that. He died on a cross. That's how his affliction was seen. They are already starting their church, being an example 
with the way that the church environment was from the start with Jesus. They are already living out the life of Jesus in their community because they're receiving the word in much affliction. John Piper's definition of love is one of my favorites. Um, Nothing against Paul's in 1 Corinthians 13. That's a really good one too, right? But John Piper writes, um, this is how he defines love. It's the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. Overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. And this is the kind of labor of love that's not rooted in somebody responding to you with their love, right? It's not the overflow of people loving you back that meets the needs of other people. Nor is it um, those good feelings you have when you kind of like did something decent today. Like, I feel better. I kind of did something nice, right? It's not the overflow of those good tummy feelings of being helpful. It's the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. You know why? Because love and Christian love is often in the bed of suffering. It's often in this, this, this garden of hostility. It's often, as a believer, you're being asked to love people that may never love you back. Right? Can never pay you back. There's a passage that hits me hard every time I think about it. It says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We can never pay Jesus back for dying for all of our sin. Not even one of our sins. Jesus went through hell on the cross so we don't need to be punished in eternal hell forever. He was perfect. and He asked the Father to forgive us because we were ignorant and didn't even know what we were doing while there were nails in his hands and feet. That's a crazy love. That's a love of labor. Nobody's looking at Jesus on the cross going, I'm not sure if you love us. Nobody's doing that, right? But do we understand that? Do we feel like love is laborious? It's hard work. Or do you feel like Loving people that you kind of like is kind of like, yeah, that's where I kind of love the best. And my encouragement to you is that let's seek the scriptures about where our love comes from and how we need to give it away. So 1 John 4 is a great passage about love. Beloved, this is the John writing to the church. The church, let us love one another For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this love, and this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he have loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the forgiveness for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also ought to love one another. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
when I think of Jesus on the cross, Jesus looking at his mom there, right? The very few disciples that are left. Or maybe even looking to Peter, who's gonna be the leader of his church, and he knows that. You think Jesus, he's like, I'm dying for you guys. But when he looks at the, the guy with the, 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 the hammer in his hand, he says, I love you, that's Christian love, right? That's Christian love as well. And I think the Thessalonians, within, within their affliction, they were loving this kind of way. They were imitating Jesus. And this is my question for this section is, are you imitating Jesus right now in the way you're loving and treating others? And that word others is way too many people, right? So I just want to just for a moment, who is the Spirit putting on your heart? Maybe there's somebody in your life that's holding a hammer. And you're like, yeah, I've got that person in my life. And you may say, Dave, you don't know who that person is. You don't know the depth and the hurt and the wounds that that person has caused me. And you're right, I don't. But what I can say is true is Jesus Christ came to die for that person and their sin. That probably has hurt you a ton. And even more than that, I don't know if it's more than that, <laughs> but even with that, they are created in the image of God, just like you and, you and I are, right? And because they are image bearers of God, you should love them. And you should hope the best for them. And you should hope they would fall in love with Jesus. And if they are a Christian, and they're still hurting you, that they would be disciplined by God. So they would turn and live a life of obedience. That's true love. Will you love them this way? Verse 12 says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another. Do you see what he's implying there? What do you see when you see somebody loving an enemy or loving that, somebody that's hard or loving through the hurt in the affliction? What do you see? You see God. That's what John is saying. We get to be the display of God and his love when we love this way. So we've talked about work of faith. We've talked about labor of love. And we're going to end with the third virtue, steadfastness of hope. Starting in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we see Paul commending their faith again, right? But I want to point out in this section that Paul is going to bring up continuously through this book. It's about the return of Jesus. They have a steadfastness of hope. Their endurance is connected to the future joy of Jesus returning. And it's helping them stay the course. Even other cities 
are looking at their small new church plant and going, wow, look at the hope that they have. And where does this come from? Well, it's this future joy, this hope in something. The Thessalonians have the return of Jesus to look towards. Even though life is hard and they must endure in their suffering and their affliction, they have Jesus' second coming. Their Savior has come. Their Savior has died for their sins. Their Savior has returned to heaven. Their Savior has sent the Holy Spirit to come and be with them. And they know that that Savior will return to judge the living and the dead. And some of those believers... They've lost jobs, right? They may have lost some family because of their decision to follow Jesus. But what they have and who they're waiting on is their God, who is going to come and make all things new. And friends, sometimes we have the past, right? Like last week we talked about endurance. You can look to the past, right? What you look to, the Bible maybe. Genesis, like the oldest characters we know in the Bible. Yeah, they were faithful, God was faithful. That's great. And that's helpful, right? That, that's one of the ways that we can endure. Or it could be somebody in, in, in like more modern era that you read about a biography of like, oh, look at them. Look what they did for Jesus and they stayed the course. But maybe for you, it's sometimes your own past. Maybe you have your own Hebrews 11 kind of stories of where God just kept showing up in your life and you're like, I can't say no now. He's convinced me. But sometimes that's not enough, right? And you know what God gives us? He gives us promises of reward. He gives us something in the future to hope for, to put in the big soup of how do you endure all of this stuff, past, present, future. And the idea of Jesus as the deliverer. When you're living in affliction, which some of you may be now in this room, you're like, yes, Jesus, deliver me today. I feel it. I need to be taken out of this and saved. That is what they are clinging to. So my question for this section is, do you look to Jesus in his return for your steadfastness, for you to be hopeful in what God will do in the end? This is how I'm closing. If you have a working faith and a labor of love, you will need hope to stay steadfast. As believers, and we wear these lenses of a Christian, like these, the eyes of Jesus, those are heavy glasses, right? When you see life through these lenses, you see yourself differently, like, man, I'm sinful. When you see yourself through the scriptures, Wow, I'm nowhere near Jesus. That's a weighty thing to wear on your face. But also, when you take your eyes off yourself, you see the world. You talk about debauchery. You know, it's like the world doesn't care about Jesus. And you've chosen as a Christian to live a life where there is just pain and suffering and anti-God everywhere. You will need hope to make it through. May we all seek to grow our faith, right? May we all do the hard work of love. May we stay faithful to the end that we 
will be image bearers of God. And people will see God. And they will worship God because of our lives that are grounded in the hope of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, these three virtues of faith, love, and hope, they're all over your Bible. They're all over the words that you've given to us. May we develop in these. May we see you working in our lives. May we look at the past, the present, and the future. May we stay steadfast today. May we say we're sorry today because we become pictures of you to the world. It's in your name. Amen.